Well, this morning, we'll begin a a short series on a book that the the German poet Goethe called the most beautiful short story, namely the rightly beloved uh, book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. What's not to love, really? Ruth is, first of all, short. For those of you who remember the previous series. (laughs) I mean, you can, and I urge you to, read it in about 20 minutes or so. It's a dramatic and a beautifully crafted story. It is a love story of sorts. Not in the modern sense, but in, in in a profound sense, it's a love story. It's understated, and it's elegant. It's told by a skillful narrator. The way Hebrews tended to narrate things, the narrator doesn't waste any words. He expects us to pick up on all the hints. Nor does the narrator ever pass judgment on what's going on. You have a storyteller here who doesn't stop and say, and this is good, and that is bad, and this is good. Ruth is an earthy story. It's concrete. It's accessible. It's easy to understand. It's about ordinary people in their ordinary ebb and flow of their practical daily living. In short, it's very far away from the literary world of the book of Revelation, and that's by design. Man does not live by apocalyptic literature alone. So today, we'll look at just the opening five verses of Ruth chapter 1. The opening five verses of the, of the book. And I'm going to make three points. They're there on the inside page, back page of your bulletin. The famine, the family's flight, and the frowning providence. So first, the famine. So the historical situation was, verse 1 tells us, in the days when the judges ruled. So after the time of Joshua and before Samuel, and this is why the book of Ruth is between Judges and Samuel in your Old Testament. And the time of Judges was a time of chaos. The time when the judges ruled was largely a period of rebellion in Israel. Right? There were these cycles. You're aware of them, I'm sure. These famous cycles in the book of Judges where the people of Israel would sin. They'd be subjected to judgment. They would cry out to God. God would deliver them. He'd raise up a judge to save them. And the cycle would start again. But it's important to notice that in the book of Judges, there's a deterioration. It gets worse over time. So that in the back end of the book of Judges, like Judges chapter 17 through 21, those chapters are full of corporate, public, national faithlessness, really shocking debauchery, and eventually civil war in Israel. And the book of Judges ends with this famous signature line. There was, in those days... There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how the book of Judges ends. So this was an era of lawlessness, and the not-so-subtle suggestion in Judges is that a king is needed. 
a king is needed to bring about the salvation of Israel. And the book of Ruth, it turns out, is an episode. It's like a little cameo through the lens of one family. And it's an episode, it doesn't appear like this at first, but by the end we see it's an episode in bringing forth the king. The bringing forth of King David and ultimately his greater heir, King Jesus. So, in this situation, in this time when the judges ruled, this time of lawlessness, the text continues, there was a famine in the land. Now, the land is Canaan, the promised land, the land of milk and honey. It's the only land where God dwelt in the midst of his people. This is the land where the covenant promises were in force. And at the heart of those covenant promises between God and Israel, tied to this land, was this. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. In this land, in this land, there was a famine. And thus, with great economy, with great efficiency, the narrator wants us to see that the famine is a judgment. It's not just a random weather fluctuation. It's not a California dry spell. This is not a famine in New Jersey. This is a famine in this land. Famine is one of the threatened curses of the covenant if Israel, once in the land, was disobedient as they were in this time of the judges. Now, famines, of course, are times of great fear, terrible hardship. They create enormous strain on ordinary families. And in this time, in this land, Israelites face a choice. Do we see the famine as a judgment and thus repent and turn back to God? Wait for his provision? Wait for his face to shine on us again? Or perhaps do we take some other course of action? And that brings me to the second point here, which is the family's flight. So verse 1 continues, So a man... Or a certain man. Notice again, the story is not short-term anyway about kings. It's not about powerful or great people. It's about ordinary people in Israel in a very bleak, bleak time. This is part of why the book is so beloved, I think. It's, It's about people like us dealing with the hard and bitter circumstances of life. So a man... A guy, an ordinary guy from Bethlehem in Judah, the text says. Now that piques an attentive reader's ears, interest. We've been told there's no king in Israel at the end of Judges. And the book of Ruth starts by saying, we're going to start this story in Bethlehem. The promised place of the Messianic king, the future birthplace of David the king. And there's an irony here. An important irony. Bethlehem means 
house of bread. Beth is house, Lahem is bread. It was a fertile grain area in Israel. And thus, Bethlehem, the bread basket, is empty. It's undergoing the famine. And so you have this famine, this absence of bread, where naturally there would be bread. And all of this points, faintly somewhat, but we're just in the middle of the first verse. It points, it prefigures the barrenness, the decimated family and the empty wombs that are going to figure so largely in the rest of the story. So a man, a certain man, an ordinary man, from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife, the text says, one wonders if she was consulted. Together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while, or they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the two sons were named Malon and Kilion. You know what's interesting here already? Malon and Kilion appear to be Canaanite names. These are not Hebrew names that this Hebrew family in the land named their children. They were The family was Ephratites, that's their clan, from Bethlehem in Judah. So they're from the clan, and they're from the city and the tribe of David. And so the text says that this family went to Moab and lived there. The end of verse 2 says, they went to Moab and they lived there. Now this can seem to be a reasonable move, right? Even a noble thing. There is a famine. And Elimelech and Naomi have to provide for and protect their family. Now, who cannot sympathize with the situation that Elimelech is in? In many ways, it seems like it's a relative no-brainer. I mean, after all, Abraham sojourned in Egypt during a famine... But we should notice a few things about this. Abraham did not go at God's command. He got to Egypt. He engaged in deception about Sarah. He was rebuked by a pagan king. It's very far from clear that Abraham did the right thing. And later, when Isaac is about to leave the promised land during a famine, God commands him to stay. And even later, Jacob who had already sent his sons down to Egypt during a famine, Jacob himself is hesitant to go. He doesn't want the whole family out of the promised land. And God confirms to Jacob in a dream that he is to go and that the Lord will provide and restore him to the land. And so the general principle, even for the patriarchs, for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, seems to be this. The default place... The place of provision is Canaan, unless God specifically directs one to leave. But actually, the situation is even clearer than this. We can say more than that. The patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were in the land by promise. They did not yet possess the land. 
They were sojourners in a land that was destined to be theirs. But it was not yet the consecrated, holy possession that it was to become. Elimelech, on the other hand, he lives after the conquest of Joshua. Now, in his time, Yahweh's presence, his covenantal promises of blessing and curse are in fact tied to this land. So Elimelech's flight here with his family is sinful. It's an act of faithlessness. It is even an act of apostasy. One does not just decide to leave this land. One does not just get up and say, I think I'll seek a better economic opportunity. Just because the economic conditions have changed. This is not like seeking a job in New Jersey. You don't leave this land. When you have a famine in this land, in the day of judges, after the conquest, the remedy is repentance and not flight. It's a hard word. I understand that. God sends the famine to awaken and restore his people. And he can be trusted to provide for his righteous ones even in the midst of famine. Now, you might be asking, did Elimelech know all this? Well, he should have. It's just basic stuff. Every adult Israelite in the land, in covenant with Yahweh, would have read or heard read to them from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. It's not rocket science. But we have no indication in the text that Elimelech tried to think through his situation in faithfulness to the law of Yahweh, to the word of God. We're just told he left. I think, beloved, there's a lesson here. We often do similar things. We, we make life decisions, sometimes big ones, without any reference to the covenant or to the church or to the kingdom of God. You know, I have never had a person come to me say, you know, I moved to Pennsylvania for this church, but I haven't been able to find a job here for three years. No one ever does that. Have you ever noticed that? No one ever moves for the kingdom and says, I'll worry about finding a job later. They move for the job, and then we find out they haven't found a faithful church for five years. And the family's spirituality has been devastated, slowly eroded. They wander. Often they're shipwrecked. The assumption seems to be we can serve God anywhere, so let's go what's best for our economic interests. Now, all else being equal, this may be fine, but anyone who's in leadership has seen families get into serious spiritual danger because they made a move without ever asking whether there was a faithful church in their new hometown to tend and to nourish their souls. That tends to be an afterthought. And here, you know what else we know? We know that the faithful in Israel stayed in the land. And we know that the Lord kept them alive and provided for them. And the reason we know that, to jump ahead a little bit here, is that when Naomi finally does return to Bethlehem some 10 years later, way down in verse 19, the women of the town recognize her. And they say, can this be Naomi? 
You know what that means? That means they stayed. And they survived. And she and her family, they fled. Now, now notice a couple of other things the narrator expects us to pick up here. And I think these confirm our reading of the family's flight. The first is an irony. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. And yet this is the time of the judges. When there was no king. And when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so it's ironic. Because Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, is doing what is right in his own eyes. You know what else? Elimelech didn't simply flee. He went to Moab, a pagan nation 50 miles southeast of Bethlehem. Moab is a people descended from Lot's incest with his daughter. And here's another irony. The people of Moab refused to offer Israel bread and provisions when they came out of Egypt and sought to enter Canaan. Instead, the Moabite king Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel. Moabite women seduced the Israelites into immorality and idolatry at Baal Peor. And just recently in Israel's history, a Moabite king, Eglon, oppressed Israel for 18 years. Right? This is not a people of kindred spirit or religious faith. They worship the god Chemosh, who, among other things, required child sacrifice. And in addition to that, the Moabites, because of the way they treated Israel, they were not allowed, the Torah says, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord for ten generations. You can find that in Deuteronomy 23, which may be a way of saying forever. And so, Elimelech thinks it's a good idea to bring his two marriage-age sons and his wife to this land. From the Holy Land to this land. So the text says in verse 1, they went to, notice this, sojourn in Moab. The story reads like it was supposed to be like a temporary, short-term remedy. Just a sojourn. Right? That's often the case with us. What we think is a short-term expedient thing to do ends up with these long-term ramifications that we could have never foreseen. Especially when we wander from the covenant. Small compromises turn into big, long-standing ones, and eventually we hardly notice. Just a short, temporary stay. And by the end of verse 2, you'll see this in the text, it says they lived there. They settled in. He's coaching Little League in Moab now. And of course, we learn in verse 4 that the remnant of the family stayed there 10 years. Now, I've been kind of hard on Elimelech, I know. He is in an awful situation. And awful situations pressure us to compromise and to cut corners. We ought not to be self-righteous because I doubt many of us have faced the terror of a famine. But the scripture is clear. 
For Israel in the land, the famine is a judgment and it's a test. And Elimelech, in this awful situation, made an awful decision. So that's the family's flight. The last point is the frowning providence. Verse 3. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. So she is now a widow in a strange land, in a culture where women are vulnerable economically and socially. And since her sons are not yet married, and people married quite young then, this means Elimelech has died as a young man in the prime of his life. He has died before his two sons are married, which means they're probably less than 20. So maybe he's 35 or 40. Elimelech dies in the prime of his life. You know, throughout the book of Ruth, Naomi, and this is another wonderful feature of the book, she's painted with a kind of vivid realism. She has her virtues, for sure. But she's not without her faults. Because these are real people, people of clay like us. And for Naomi, your heart goes out to her. Life has already dealt her a series of brutal blows. The text says, and she was left with her two sons. Now, a question arises here. What should she do? Well, we know what she should do. She should take her two sons and return to Israel, trusting the Lord to provide. At least there, her sons could marry in the covenant. But she doesn't do this. Now, She stays. Now, whether she had a say in the family's original flight or not, now staying is her choice. Maybe she was too numb. Her husband is dead. Maybe she's too tired from the famine and the exile. She's too shattered to even think about attempting to move back into the teeth of a famine. You know how it gets. Life kicks people around, and they don't want to even think about spiritual things. They just put one foot in front of another. For whatever reason, the text says, she stays. And the two sons, the text says, married Moabite women. And strictly speaking, this is not forbidden. Israel was forbidden from marrying Canaanite women, women in the nation's in the land, the tribal peoples in the land, the Moabites were just outside the land. But this is profoundly unwise and deeply foolish, given all that I've said about Moab above. As Moabites, neither these women, like Naomi's son's wives, nor any offspring they might have, would likely ever be allowed to enter the sanctuary of the Lord once they're back in the land. But if you go to Moab with two sons, and if after your husband dies, you stay in Moab, well, guess what? You get Moabite daughters-in-law. One named Orpah and the other named Ruth. You know, it's part of the power and the legacy of this story that we all know Ruth as a fully Jewish and Christian name when it is, in fact, a Moabite name. So the family, the text continues, lived there about 10 years. 
And both Malon, who is Ruth's husband, we learn later, and Kilion also died. How is this even possible? These two young men could barely be 30. They married young for sure. They were married perhaps 10 years. And Naomi is now left without her two sons and her husband. Three devastating losses in 10 years. The sons die childless, leaving Naomi without heirs. So now Naomi, an alien, she has no protection, no provision, no heirs, no inheritance. And you know what? She has no explanations. So I want to close by saying a few things about providence because this book is largely about providence. First, and this is a a bit of a biting thing to have to say because I think the text says it, teaches it. It's not possible to read this body count as anything but a judgment in light of what we said earlier about the flight to Moab. And you know, If that makes you queasy, I want you to notice this. To her credit, Naomi sees all of this as the hand of the Lord. She does not attribute it to chance. She does not say, well, the devil's been attacking my family. It is exceedingly bitter, she will say. With Naomi, there's no whitewashing of the agony of this of the incomprehensibility of it. There's no pious platitudes for her. But it is embraced by her in her own halting sort of way as as coming from God's hand, his providential hand. She may not connect all the dots we've connected, but she knows who is the Lord and sovereign over life and death. Second, then, some of God's providence as we have here, some of his providences are brutal. This is just a fact. They're dark and they're grim. And in the midst of them, we have no idea what is happening. Not only do we have no idea what's happening, we cannot see how any good could possibly come from them. Right? Often, they seem to us to be positively harmful, as if God is against us. That's what Naomi says. The hand of the Lord has got out against me. Right? You've all seen providential events befall families. And it looks like the effect is simply to destroy the family. A spouse loses their faith. The children walk away from God because parents die or vice versa. You look at the series of providences and you think they seem designed to destroy this family. And they don't come with labels interpreting them or disclosing their purposes. Naomi has no idea why this is happening, apparently. And she surely has no idea how things will end up. She can't see into the future. She doesn't have the benefit of the back end of the book that we have. And beloved, this is true, by the way, even if she had a robust biblical theology of the covenant and understood this as a judgment. There would still be the question of why this judgment? What, what, was I the only family that left Israel during the famine? Why am I the only one who's lost their husband and their two sons? 
even if you can broadly say this is a judgment from God's hand, well, the whole creation lies under a judgment from God's hand. These individual providences that come to Naomi's family are still inscrutable. And third, and this is part of why the story is so dear and practical to God's people. We identify with this because we suffer blows. Blows that are cruel and inexplicable. To live is to be vulnerable, to be fragile, to suffer the shocks of death. We are like these people, like this family. We know what it's like to feel like life is unraveling, to feel like maybe the hand of the Lord has gone out against us. We know that things get bitter and dark, and we can't seem to make any sense of it at, at the time. Often we can't make any sense of it for a very long time. But this story is about to turn. Yes, today's text is bleak, but things do get better here slowly, and they get better in a very realistic way. And when, when they do turn, We're going to see in this story that God is at work for extraordinary good among ordinary, sinful people. And you know what? He is doing that even in the midst of his own chastisement of his people for their sins. He's at work for everlasting good. Even when it can't be seen. Even when you can't connect the dots. And so the opening of the book of Ruth puts that question to us. Can you believe that about your own life? about the dark providences which have befallen you. That God is at work, especially at work among the wreckage. Behind the scenes, sure, silently, slowly, but he's knitting us in our little lives into his cosmic purposes. You know, Naomi, contrary to appearances, is left here, stripped of all she's been stripped with, she is nonetheless left with an embarrassment of riches because she has Israel's God. And you know what else? She has the magnificent Ruth. And what God will do through her grief will renew not only her own life, not only Israel, not only the monarchy, but it will renew the world. Fourth and finally here, And this is an important point. Though providences can be bitter and harsh in this world, God is not. Think of the scenario where a father has to take a young child who's dangerously ill to the hospital and hold the young child down on the table, the child screaming, not understanding what the father is doing, so the doctor can administer some painful medication or cure to the child. It appears that the father is cruel. The providence is cruel. The father is tender. The providence is cruel. The father is good. The knife is sharp. The physician is merciful. And it's very important to see that. God is a good and tender father. He has permanently turned his face toward us in Jesus Christ. This is crucial to get. Providence is difficult, often impossible to read. 
And while providence tells us something about God, it is not the full unveiling of God's heart. God's heart is unveiled to you in the gospel of Jesus. That's where we see who God is. That's where the Father shows himself to us. Because in Jesus, he bears our sinful fleeing, our exiles from his presence, through his own exile from the Father's face on the cross. Naomi does not figure out. We always want to figure out what's happening. She doesn't decode anything here about God's providence. You know what she ends up doing simply? She returns to the land and thus to the presence and worship of Israel's God. And we too, in the midst of our confusions and our convulsions and our losses, are to return to Christ the Lord. Read God's heart in the gospel of his Son. Trusting that, as our closing hymn will say, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Amen.